chapter 13 is where we've been over the last couple of weeks, and that's where we resume our study through the Gospel of Luke today. And so I hope you'll find your way. If you have a Bible, if you don't, you can look on with a neighbor. By all means, I welcome the use of your digital devices, and uh, hopefully I'll keep on to my, hold of my Bible here too. But the door is narrow, and the time is short. That's the title of today's message. I believe that picks up well on the theme of what we're going to talk about, what we're going to see Jesus teaching here as we get into Luke chapter 13, and we'll be kicking off around verse 22 today. But as we kind of get our thoughts collected around this topic, I I want to share with you uh, a story I heard of a couple of evangelists who were going from door to door hoping to share the gospel with individuals, and if any of you have been through that sort of experience before, you know not every door is an open door. Not every door is a welcoming door. And so these particular evangelists came to the door of this place where they were visiting. They knocked on the door, and a woman answered the door. And so they told her, we're here to talk to you about Jesus. Well, she told them, I don't want to hear any of that. And with that, she, she tried to close the door. She tried to slam the door shut, but... Just as soon as the door came to where it should have closed, it sprung back open. Well, there were a few moments of awkward silence as the woman stood there, and these two men are standing outside of her door. She tried to slam the door again. Same sort of experience. Once again, the door just bounced back into its place. So she assumed that one of these men's feet must have been in the way of the door. So she reared back. She was really going to show them what for. When all of a sudden, one of those evangelists said, uh, Ma'am, ma'am, just, just want to pause for a second. You might want to move your cap before you do that. <laughs> doors. We have them all around us. Some, indoor, some doors invite you to come in. Other doors are used to keep you away. In my life, I've learned a lot of lessons about doors. When I was young, I watched my mom and dad lock up Our doors each night is a way of keeping others out. I I remember having those doors locked when we would see individuals from the local cults coming to visit us in our home and hiding out like no one would ever be able to tell that we were there. I've had that experience in evangelism too where you walk up, somebody's like obviously been cleaning their car. The doors are wide open, but you knock on the front door, you walk around in the back, and no one is in sight. They're doing the same thing we were, which is, you know, kind of Jehovah's Witnesses hiding out. But when I, was, when I was young, those were some lessons that I learned about doors. I learned it's a nice thing to hold the door open for certain individuals, especially if you're a man holding the door for a woman, or if you see individuals who have a need or their arms are full. That can be a great way to show chivalry, chivalry just by carrying out a, a simple act of holding a door. As I grew older and moved off to college and then out on my own, I came to appreciate how my folks always had an open door sort of policy for me such that I could always come home whenever I wanted. Maybe they second-guessed that now. I don't know, but no, they were always kind in that. One day, Amy and I had the door of our home at the place where we lived kicked down by a couple of thieves who then ransacked our place and took away all of the valuables that they could find and on that day I learned that our doors have limits not everyone respects doors the same way later we had kids who grew up to be toddlers and we learned that sometimes doors aren't just for keeping individuals out 
sometimes there for keeping individuals in, as would be the case with many a toddler. Uh, as a matter of fact, when our oldest son was just a toddler, we were trying to teach him, we were trying to adapt him. He had just gotten in the point where we'd moved him from the crib into the toddler bed, and we were trying to teach him that this is the place where you sleep. But if any of you have been through that experience, you know it's pretty easy for kids to kind of spring out of there and come and jump in mom and dad's bed. And so uh, what we learned, we had, a, we had a coworker at the time who recommended that we take the lock on his door and we spin it around the other way. And sure enough, we tried that. And the first night we heard beat, beating and scrawling and about probably 15 minutes later, silence. So we went into the door. Surely enough, there was our youngest one, I mean our oldest one at the time, youngest and oldest at the time, who was there asleep in his bed. So doors hold the function of keeping individuals out. Sometimes they keep individuals in. Doors are all around us, and we use them so often that we tend to think very little about the doors that we use. Doors are often a means by which we enter or exit buildings and rooms and cars and so on. And doors may also be the instruments that we use to allow some individuals in and to keep other individuals out. And Jesus uses this occasion of someone asking him a question that we'll look at here in just a few moments to draw our attention to the analogy of a door. And this particular door is a door that leads into the kingdom of God, as we'll see. This is not a literal door. I don't want you to, to grab your map or to punch in your GPS the coordinates so that you can find your way to the door that opens to God's kingdom. No, as we've seen many times over our study through Luke, Jesus was an excellent teacher. He remains an excellent teacher. And he often uses common and familiar items in situations like the one that we're going to look at here today to teach us eternal truths. And so that's what Jesus does here in this passage today as we're going to read together here in just a moment. Jesus takes the simple idea of a door and he shows us some important lessons about how and when individuals get into the kingdom of God. So I'm going to ask you now to join me in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 22. If you're able, I'd ask that you'd stand that we might honor the reading of God's word as we read together. Luke 13, 22, And he, that is Jesus, was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping, 
and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from the east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As we get into today's passage, we should recall that Jesus is on his way in this long-term journey where he's ultimately set his sights on Jerusalem, that holy city of the Jews. Really, that holy city where so many of the world's religions find their genesis, this place that God had called for his people to build their temple in. And in fact, in the verses following this passage, we encounter Jesus lamenting over that holy city of Jerusalem and how obstinate the people who dwelt there were as they killed the prophets, as they rejected God's message. Back in Luke chapter 9, we saw how Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. And so since that time, since Luke chapter 9, we've encountered Jesus kind of weaving through the cities and the villages of Judea He's on his way to the place where he will soon die for the sins of mankind. Luke reveals to us here in Luke chapter 13, 22, that Jesus is passing from one city and village to another. He's teaching as he proceeds to his destination. And on this day, as Jesus is passing through some unnamed place where some unnamed person was there, This unnamed person has a question for Jesus. And that question is there found in verse 23. Here's the question. Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Now, for honest, that's a question that we've all probably asked in one form or another at some point. Do you ever think about heaven, for example, and then wonder how many people will be there? Do you ever think about heaven and say, well, when I get to that place, if I get to that place, will the streets there be crowded or will they be sparse? Or maybe you look around at the people in your workplace or the people in your family or the people in your church and you begin to wonder, how many of these people are truly saved? How many of them are going to spend an eternity with God? Maybe you tune in on the TV and you see large gatherings of individuals in some political rally or some sporting event or some crowded city sidewalk and you wonder, how many of these people are truly saved? That's a common place for all of our minds to go from time to time. But it's interesting to note that here in this passage, Jesus doesn't answer that question directly. When this individual asks Jesus the question in verse 24, Jesus instead launches into a lesson about the need to strive to enter the narrow door to the kingdom of heaven. Rather than focusing our attention on how many individuals are being saved, Jesus calls for us to examine ourselves and to ask ourselves the question, am I being saved? 
This leads me to wonder, what would it really benefit us if we knew the answer to that question? I mean, if we really knew the answer to the question, are there many or are there only a few who are being saved, would would that benefit you and I? I mean, when I take an honest inventory of myself, I think, like, if I knew that many individuals were being saved, if I knew, like, 90% of of the human population was going to be saved, my tendency would be to, you know, kind of kick back in the easy chair and say, okay, God's got this covered. I'm in good shape. On the other end of the spectrum, if I knew that there were only, like, a certain small percentage of individuals who were going to be saved, my mind would go the other way, and I would tend to, to go toward despair and I would probably at some point check out and say this is not worth it it's not going to happen for me and so I'm just going to give up the whole pursuit of God sort of thing and so I can see how answering this question for individuals could ultimately lead us away from the task of evangelism or the task of taking a personal account of who we are and where we stand with the Lord such that we make a determination of whether or not we're going to be saved. Are we truly striving to enter into the narrow door? But this was a question that the Jews would ask with a certain sort of mentality to them. They assumed they were God's chosen people, and therefore they were all headed for heaven. Only the worst of them would not be in the kingdom of God, and therefore they had this sort of mentality which was smug, which assumed that, While there may be few who are going into heaven, that's at least going to include me. So the way that Jesus responds here really puts the impetus on them, and it puts the impetus on us as well, because we've all got to take an account of ourselves. And the real question that will make the difference for us is not will there be few that are saved, but will I be saved? Have I been saved? Is Jesus the Lord over my life? Have I placed all of my hope in him? And so truthfully, it's not our business to know how many individuals are being saved. Our business, which was given to us by our King Jesus, is to make sure that we ourselves are saved and that we strive by the means through which we are granted to let others know of this salvation as we live out the Great Commission that he's called us to. And it's a tragedy, but I've met many an individual who wants to know about God's work without experiencing God's work. They want to know how many are being saved without being saved themselves. But hear me on this. Salvation is not just a theory for us to bat around. It's not just something for us to discuss. Salvation is a miracle to be experienced, my friends. And Jesus would not have you to sell yourself short by knowing the ins and outs of how he is working without experiencing the power of his work within you. And so Jesus redirects this unknown individual who asks this question here in Luke chapter 13. And as he does so, he gives us a command in verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. That word translated strive in the New American Standard Bible is the Greek word agonizomai. It's the word that we get our English word agonize from. 
as you might be able to tell with that agonizomai sort of root. It's a word which means to exert oneself, to struggle, to fight, to labor fervently. It's a word that was actually used of those who would participate in the Greek Olympic Games as they competed against one another. They were striving against one another. And what is it that we are to struggle and to strive and to prepare and to agonize to do? Well, Jesus commands us to strive to enter through the narrow door. Again, Jesus is using an analogy to show us how to enter into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, this kingdom where all of those who are under the reign of our God as king dwell. He's showing us the importance of being saved and setting about your pursuit of being saved. Those who enter through the door arrive at the kingdom and they have been saved. These are the ones that Jesus is speaking about. And those who are outside of the door are those who are lost and apart from God. And in this passage, I want to show you three lessons from the Lord Jesus about the door to God's kingdom. Here's the first lesson. The door to God's kingdom is narrow. By that I mean that some individuals seek to enter this door, but they are not able. When Jesus speaks in verse 24, he says, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for I tell you, many will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, we live in a world where people assume that anything goes. We live in a world where many people assume that all roads lead to heaven. We live in a world where individuals presume that there are all sorts of doors that you can walk through in order to enter God's kingdom. That is, they believe as long as you are authentic and you are basically morally good, you'll get into heaven, no matter what your religion may be. But Jesus shows us in this verse that there's only one door that opens to the kingdom of God. He uses the Greek definite article to indicate that we are to strive to enter through the one door and the only door, which is described as the narrow door. In a similar way, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus used the analogy of a gate to teach this same sort of lesson. For he preached these words in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He said, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And friends, when it comes to your choice of how to find eternal life, Jesus makes it clear that there is only one way, and that is the narrow way. Or to state it more clearly, Jesus is the only way to the kingdom of God. The door to God's kingdom is narrow because God only needed one sufficient plan to save the world. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that one plan. He is the only one sufficient to save us. And if this world wants to call us, those of us who are in the church, narrow-minded because we hold to the truth that Jesus teaches in these verses that we've just looked at here, then I say let us be known as narrow-minded because there is a narrow way. And we cannot contradict our Lord in this mentality. And this truth remains. There is only one way, and Jesus is that way. 
Let me furthermore just state, don't get the impression. Don't let anyone convince you that coming to Jesus is going to be the easy way. Don't let anyone give you the impression that that coming to him is going to be the popular way. It is the narrow way. Don't let anyone convince you that it's the way to earthly prosperity because that's not what Jesus shows us in these verses. No, Jesus says, enter through the narrow door. But we should give earnest attention to this word strive in this passage. As I've said, that's a word that means to give a diligent effort. Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. That is, there's some level of personal effort that is involved. Well, what is that effort? Now, we dare not say that our own works will save us because the Bible is clear that it is by grace through faith that anyone has been saved. And and that is not of ourselves. It is a gift from God, lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So don't get the impression that Jesus is here teaching that somehow you've got to work your way into your own salvation. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is not commanding us to earn our own salvation. What sort of effort is needed then? What sort of striving is needed? Well, Jesus has made it clear throughout Luke's gospel that if we're going to pursue his kingdom, then we must relinquish our own kingdoms. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. That is, Jesus commands us to pursue him, to strive to enter through the narrow door that he holds open. And in the opening verses of Luke chapter 13, we encounter Jesus teaching this same sort of message. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And if we're going to repent, if we're going to strive to enter through the narrow door, then we're going to have to let go of a few things. Preacher F.B. Meyer says it this way, the door to the kingdom of God is so narrow that there is no room to carry through it the love of self, the greed of gain, the thirst for applause, and the rewards of the world. And if we're going to enter the narrow door of God's kingdom, then we must let go of these things which will not fit. We must come with humility We must come with honesty. We must come striving to set aside our old self in repentance. And that's an intentional pursuit. That's a pursuit characterized by war against the things that once held power over who we were. It's a battle against the world and the flesh and the devil, these enemies of the Christian. And if you have not entered into the battle against these things, if you are not striving against your old self and the old nature of who you once were before you gave your life to Jesus, then I would warn you to give an earnest examination to what salvation you may say you have. Because that door is not wide. God does business with those who mean business. The kingdom of God is not entered by drifting, but by, 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 by deliberate decision to yield your life to Jesus as Lord. 
And that means that we engage in battle. We engage in strife and agonizing against the former lords of our lives that we are now striving to lay in the dust. And our striving does not earn our salvation, but someone who has made Jesus the Lord over his or her life will be striving to pursue his will. The mark of the authentic Christian is a growth in holiness, both in the outward activity and in the recesses and the passions of that individual's heart. And so do you want to enter the narrow door of God's kingdom? Then you must strive. You must strip yourself of the insufficiency of worldly crowns and royal robes. You must come clothed only in sackcloth of repentance. If you want to come through the narrow door, then you must make yourself small to get in. You must leave everything but what Christ desires for you outside because this door is narrow. And those who are only mildly interested about salvation should know that they will not obtain it. Those who are not striving to yield every inch of their lives to Christ are not living out the Christian's calling. Now, none of us is going to be perfect in that pursuit. If you've tried that even for a moment, you know how we all fail. This is not a call to perfection. But this is something that is clear for us and that we should not give up the pursuit of knowing God, of living according to His will, of having Him as the Lord over our lives. I'm not trying to convince you that if you slip and if you fall and if you feel guilty in your conscience, if you plead to God to forgive you, that that's insufficient. No, God will forgive you. He does forgive you. He must forgive us if there is any chance of us ever having eternal life. But the reality is that those who have yielded their lives to Christ as Lord ought to expect that His work within them, His lordship over their lives, is going to produce fruit in the way that they live, in the passions that they sense. And so, yes, we may fail, but the Christian is on a long-term trajectory to pursue the Lord. We continue to strive. We continue to battle. We continue to agonize against the sin that wears against us. We press on toward our prize. As Jesus says here in verse 24, many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That is, there are some who are mildly interested in being saved by Jesus. They seek to enter, but they are not able. Truly, if if we look at that from an honest perspective, none of us is able. None of us is able on our own pursuits. There is none who is righteous. No, not one of us. We're all broken. We're all spoiled by sin. But God, through Christ, has given us the ability that we did not have, the ability that we needed. For He has come as the righteous one to stand in the place of the unrighteous. And when we give our lives to him, he saves us. But that's a submission that has implications for all that we are and all that we do. The apostle Paul said it this way. He said, to me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is, to, to Paul, Christ was just that. He was everything. 
even life itself. And so I tell you, don't play around with your Christianity. Getting saved, living a Christian life, and winning others to the Lord is a full-time occupation. We ought to pray over it. We ought to weep over it. We ought to study over it. And we ought to work over it. For if we possess true salvation, it will possess us. Let me remind you that this word that's translated strive here was used of the Olympic athlete. Can you imagine this, you know, a dude who's been just sitting on his couch for two months watching NFL football, strolling up to the Olympic tryouts and making the Olympic team? No, we couldn't imagine that, right? Athletes strive. The Olympian makes winning the gold medal the focus of his life. Everything that he does is controlled by his goal of winning the gold. He won't eat anything that is not good for him because it might keep his muscles from performing at their maximum capacity on the day of the race. He doesn't go to parties and he doesn't stay up late the night before because he wants to be rested. He wants to be ready to give everything that he has to the race. He stays away from some of the fun activities that his other friends enjoy because he doesn't want to harm his performance. He is disciplined to work for hours in the gym, even when his body is screaming, I can't take it anymore, because he wants to win. That's the kind of attitude that we should have toward our own salvation, according to Jesus. It shouldn't be a nice thing to think about every once in a while when you don't have anything better to do. It should be on your mind every day. It should govern everything you do. It should determine how you spend your time, your money, and your leisure hours. You must strive to enter because the door is narrow. It's not a great big wide door that you can wander into without thinking about it. You must be earnest to make sure that Christ alone is your hope of salvation. As the Bible commands us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? And so, friends, I just ask you, are you living in such a way that shows that Christ is the Lord over your life and that you are striving to enter through the narrow door? Because the first lesson from the Lord Jesus about the door to God's kingdom is that the door is narrow. Here's the next lesson about the door to God's kingdom. The door to God's kingdom is closing. It, It will one day soon close with finality. That's what Jesus conveys in verse 25. Again, he's talking about the kingdom of God, and he indicates that at some point the head of the house is going to get up and shut the door. It's the same message of coming judgment and the finality of our decisions that Jesus has been preaching through much of what we've seen in Luke chapter 12 and Luke chapter 13. He's warned over and over again that a final time of judgment is coming. A final time to make that decision is coming. Jesus is coming again. And so I ask you, do you hear his warnings? God's door will soon close. The door of opportunity to receive him is closing. The time is short. And for those who are left on the outside of the door, when this door to the kingdom is closed... They will be left knocking and crying out, Lord, open unto us. 
Jesus says here. But Jesus shows us in this verse that his answer will be, I do not know where you are from. That is, the door will not be open for you. You don't belong here. And you must know, friends, that the call of the gospel is only extended for a little time. The good news of what Jesus has done and the life that you can find in him is only offered for a limited time. The door of God's mercy and grace will not remain open indefinitely. And so I plead with you, come to the kingdom. Come in through the narrow door while it still now stands wide open. Cast aside the pull of all the things that are temporary and come running through the narrow door, which leads to eternal life. The time to trust in Christ is now. The time to come into his kingdom is now. Because when God closes the door, it will be too late. No pitiful plea will prevail. The door will be permanently shut. Those outside will be hopelessly and forever banished from God's kingdom. And so you must know that today is the day to call Jesus Lord. Don't wait until the door is shut. Yes, the second lesson from our Lord Jesus about the door to God's kingdom is that the door is closed. And here's the final lesson. The door to God's kingdom is restricted. That is, only those who are known by Jesus are allowed in. Why are those individuals in verse 25 shut out? Because the Lord of the door says, I do not know where you are from. That is, there are some individuals who belong here and you do not belong here. This door is restricted. You are not welcome in this place. Well, in verse 26, those individuals try to make an appeal. They feel sure that they know Jesus. And so they say, we ate and we drank in your presence and we taught in your streets. They thought they knew him. They thought Jesus was cool with them. Sure, they had some things they didn't like about his teaching. Sure, they weren't ready to go all in and denying themselves and dying to themselves and taking up that cross and that whole business. But they were nice to Jesus. I mean, they welcomed him in. They took time to cheer him on. They, they listened. They watched his miracles. They heard his teaching. They ate and they drank with him. But once again, Jesus gives the response to those who never really knew him in verse 27. As he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. That evildoer's term is not insignificant, by the way. These individuals are, in Christ's sight, nothing more than evildoers. That is, they have not been cloaked with his righteousness. They have not placed their faith in him. They continue to pursue their own kingdoms, their own evil. They continue to do what God forbids. They claim to know God, but their lives tell another story. And it's so clear from this passage that there are only two final categories, only two destinations for all of mankind. This closed door will create a final separation for all of us. The door is restricted. Not everyone can come through. 
You'll either be inside or you will be outside. No one, when God's door closes, will be sort of in or sort of out. And so you may ask, well, well, when will the door be shut? Well, that's ultimately for the head of the house to decide. And he hasn't revealed when that door is shutting. But know this, the Lord is coming soon. He has promised this to be the case. And you don't want to put this decision off. Furthermore, your eternal destiny may be fixed before the day of judgment when the Lord comes. If you should die first, Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Life hangs by a thread, even for the youngest and the healthiest among us. And so I urge you, do not put off entering through the narrow door. The head of the house may offer salvation, but he may withdraw that offer at any moment as the door comes slamming shut. And as I mentioned earlier, this is a message that the Jews particularly needed to hear. They assumed that just because they were God's chosen people, they were all automatically headed for heaven. But here, Jesus is preaching in their midst and he's teaching them that they must earnestly strive to enter through the narrow door. He then tells them that those who are on the outside of that door will be shocked and sorrowed and anguished at the door which has then been closed. Jesus says it this way in verse 28. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is describing the conditions of hell. This phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth appears seven times in the gospel accounts. It's always a reference to eternal judgment a place of eternal remorse a place of eternal anguish and friends i want to tell you don't let anyone tell you that there's no hell don't let anyone tell you that those who don't know jesus just cease to exist because we're all going to live forever but for those who are outside of the door that will be a miserable sort of eternity That's why Jesus describes those who are banished there as weeping and gnashing their teeth. The Jews needed to know that apart from Jesus, that's where they were headed. That's why they would see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God while they themselves were being thrown out. Many of those in the crowd were of the ancestry of Abraham, but they were not of the faith of Abraham. You see, the Old Testament said that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness many moons ago we preached through the the book of galatians and we saw that's such a clear message that paul drives home that is not those who are earthly descendants of abraham but those who are of the same faith as abraham who are blessed by god eternally And in fact, those who thought that they were right because of Abraham, because of the belief that they thought they had in whoever they thought they believed in, they thought they were going to God's kingdom. Jesus describes in verse 29 how individuals would come not from that physical lineage, but from all the corners of the earth, from the east and the west and the north and the south. And they will recline at the table. That is, they will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb in the kingdom of God. And as Jesus so often teaches, some who are now last will be first, and some who are now first 
will be last. You see, Jesus is kind of flipping our whole mentality of things upside down. We tend to get the impression like, you know, the great preachers of the gospel, the great servants in the church, the, the people who do the good things in the orphanages, the, the people who hold authority in various positions of denominational sort of affiliation. We, we tend to get the impression that those are the individuals who are just automatics in God's kingdom. And Jesus shows us here that if their heart is not right, those individuals will be last. Because none of the good things that you do, my friends, will be good enough. If Christ is not the Lord of your life, if Christ has not saved you, if Christ has not welcomed you through the narrow door, I don't care if you're a preacher who's ministered to thousands. I don't care if you're a Sunday school teacher who has taught many little ones about Jesus. You can serve in the church without end and still end up as a castaway. Why? Because our good works do not save us. Only the finished work of Jesus Christ manifested in a life that is yielded to his control is sufficient. And so the burning question is, do you know Christ? Or maybe even to word it a little better in light of what Jesus says as he tells these individuals, I do not know where you are from. Does Christ know you? I mean, are you walking with him as Lord of your life? Have you cried out to him and said, Jesus, look at me broken and miserable, a sinner. I need your salvation. Has he heard from you crying out to him, save me, Lord Jesus? Does he hear from you on a daily basis as you check in and say, Lord, I'm here, a servant of yours. My life yielded to you. Give me directions for this day. Or would Jesus say, depart from me. I never knew you. I don't even know where you are from. Friends, Jesus is the way. He is the door. As a matter of fact, in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And then in John chapter 10, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Do you hear that? Jesus says, if anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Ironclad promise based on the word of God that Jesus will save you if you come through him. He said, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so friends, you must know the door of God's kingdom is narrow. It is closing someday soon. And it is restricted to those who have entrusted their lives to the only one who is sufficient. And so the contemplation for each one of us as we gather here on this day is, am I in that number? Does does the Lord know me as one who has forsaken my own kingdom, who, who has put my own priorities aside, 